Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Central Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nick C., one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Mark Reese about his recently published translation of Bygone Days, Otkan Kunlar, published in 2019 by Mulakot Cultural Engagement Program. Mark, welcome to the show. Nick, thanks for having me today. I appreciate your time. We're really happy to have you. And and just for our listeners, so Mark uh, began his 25-year career in Central Asia as a U.S. Peace Corps volunteer in the second group to serve in Uzbekistan from 1994 to 1996. He conducted uh, field work for eight years in Central Asia, supporting and leading activities, uh, including program management as the county director for the Department of State's uh, sorry, for as country director for the Department of State's Uzbekistan Partnership Program in Comparative Religious Studies. He also served as an interpreter and consultant for the Department of Defense and in-country academic research and scholarly translation. Mark has worked as a site manager for the United States Department of Defense, managing translation and cultural advisement contracts. For the last seven years, he's worked uh, for the United States Nav- Naval Academy, holding positions as Deputy Director for the Center for Middle East and Islamic Studies and Founding Director for the Center for Regional Studies. Most recently, Mark established the Molokot Cultural Engagement Program in order to support Uzbek translators, writers, and creatives in their work. He lives in ta- Nashville, Tennessee. And we're very, very excited to have Mark here today to talk about this new translation. Uh, but first, Mark, I wanted to give you a chance to tell us about yourself, uh, this project, and how you got, you know, we, I think we, we learned a little bit about this, but to, in your own words, how you became so interested in Central Asia. Oh, gosh, this is a, it's actually really great to actually finally have an English language interview. <laughs> I've been trying to use Uzbek for so for the past three months. This is kind of nice to be able to articulate better. But I mean, you said it best yourself. As I started out as a Peace Corps volunteer in 1994, uh, that was the second group of Peace Corps volunteers to enter the country. Um, usually, when you join the Peace Corps, your group 175 to go to Ghana or Latin America to to dig that well, you know. And so we were part of the second group. Um, it was the Wild East at that point. I mean, not too far after independence of Uzbekistan. And uh, when I went, uh, I had one dictionary that was available, um, a Hippocrene dictionary, and it was completely wrong. Uh, all the words I'm mean, completely screwed up. Um, there was there was very little language material about this country. And I and I, I remember when I got my invitation, um, I got the map. You know, one day in Flagstaff, Arizona, the postman brings me this thick invitation package back in the analog world. And, um, and I rushed upstairs. I got an atlas. I looked for this place called Uzbekistan. I thought, man, just like the U.S. government to make a typo. 
you know, I'm thinking this must be East Pakistan that I'm going to. Well, if it's East Pakistan, doesn't that make it Bangladesh? You know, so I'm like, okay, well, I'm in the former Soviet Union and I wasn't able to really identify where I was going until I found Tashkent, this star in the middle of the Asian landmass. And I thought, wow, cool. It's right above Afghanistan. Who doesn't want to go there? I've always wanted to go there since I was a kid. And, you know, my dad, you know, I got the plane for Peace Corps that that summer, the plane ticket. And he, he looked at me and just simple guy, you know, from South Georgia just said, you know, you have absolutely no idea where you're going, do you? I said, I absolutely have no idea. And none of us really did on the plane. So we just landed in this place. And, you know, I got to be honest, early days of independence in the 90s, uh, you know, Central Soviet Central Asia, the former Soviet Union was a bit of a brawl. Uh, But I immediately recognized um, in the Uzbeks um, a lot of commonalities between people I grew up with in Arizona. You know, my joke is that I'm an Arizona Kishlovsky. You know, I, I grew up in an agricultural area of Arizona and, um, you know, you make a friend with a newsback, you make a friend with them for life, you know, so very much salt of the earth people. And um, I was eventually after Termez, I was placed in Kokand and I became one of the first two uh, American Peace Corps volunteers to serve in Kokan and establish that city for future volunteers. Uh, the great David Abramson that everybody knows from Central Asian Studies was working on his PhD <laughs> dissertation at the time. You know, so that a lot of, you know, Laura Adams, you know, lots of really foundational work happening at the time. But, you know, by the time I, I you know, first of all, I learned Uzbek because, you know, at that time, it was a very nationalist area, and I learned very quickly they may love you if you try to speak Russian, but you know they may like you if you try to speak Russian, but they'll love you if you speak Uzbek. And, and that's what I wanted to ask, actually. So, did you know Russian going into Uzbekistan in nineteen ninety four? Zero. Yeah, so zero. you didn't know Russian or Uzbek. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, you know, I, I went to Northern Arizona University and, you know, my idea of joining Peace Corps was going to be Guatemala. And then they thought they were going to send me to Equatorial Guinea. I thought Africa. Cool. I didn't plan on that. I'll go there. And then when I finally got my invitation, you know, to be honest, I was a little irritated because, you know, with all due respect to the to the Baltic states and Eastern Europe, I'm like, man, I didn't join the Peace Corps to go drink dark beer and go to the movies in Riga. You know, and and I'm not diminishing anyone's service there, but, you know, I I really wanted to get out there and dance around a fire somewhere in Equatorial Guinea, you know. And so so at first I was a little irritated and there was no real reference point back then as to what Uzbekistan was other than stuff about the great game. And, you know, at that point, I'd never heard of a Devin DeWeese or you know, Adib Halid, you know, these the scholars that have done such great work. It was a really foundational period. And so it just, all I can say is it just got under my skin. Uzbekistan just really, I knew that I was privileged to see an early republic grapple with issues that we'd become cynical about in the United States. And, and to be able to witness that was a privilege. And I, I say privilege because I felt always this sort of guilt that as much as I could be loved in the Mahala that I lived in and be so close to people that I've now know, like for 25 years now, you know, I was always able to get a plane ticket home 
if things got rough and, and I decided to stay, you know, and, um, after Peace Corps, I mean, as I was finishing up, I really wanted to continue on with Uzbek. Um, I spoke really terrible Kuchatila street language, but after two years of Peace Corps and the one language material that I saw in our Peace Corps training, which was very much pieced together, slapped together, was the name Ilsa Sertaldus at the bottom of an Uzbek grammar book. And so when I got home, I just decided, you know, I've got more questions about what I saw than I have answers. I, I became very cynical of great game type of narratives about Central Asia. I thought it was a little patronizing, you know, and I, I contacted Ilsa Hanum at the University of Washington and, and I hopped in a Honda before I even got admitted to the program. And I, I drove out to Seattle and I walked into her office. I said, I really want to study with you. <laughs> you know, kind of crazy, you know, not your normal path, I guess. But, you know, so I did what every Peace Corps volunteer does when they finish up, they go to grad school. You know? Yeah, and so I'm trying to establish the timeline. So yeah. you served in the Peace Corps until 1996. Uh, when did you when did you make this uh, you know fateful drive up to the uh, University of Washington? Well, you know, I, I really um, I stayed on after Peace Corps for about six months. I was on the first committee to do the Umid Fund to send uh, kids to the states to study. I helped establish a school in Tashkent with a dear friend, Larissa Aganjanova, you know, and, you know, I got back to Nashville through a series of events uh, where my parents just bought this house. And I, I looked around like, man, you know, Nashville's nice and everything, but I just, I really missed being out in the field. Uh, and, 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 and that's when I decided, you know, um, I just like getting on the plane for Uzbekistan. I, I, I saved up enough money for three or four months expenses in Seattle. Uh, I, 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 in fact, did call Elsa Sertalis and told her I was coming. We talked for a little while. She told me my Uzbek was terrible. <laughs> so I thought this must be the right person if she's willing to tell me my Uzbek's terrible. And, and so by 97, 98, by 98, I was driving across the United States to, to go live in Seattle. So it was a cool time to be in that city. Yeah. And so that kind of begins to answer the bigger question, but I still feel like there's a lot of information missing. Like, how did you, like, where does Kaduri and, and, and bygone days come into the story? When did you start thinking about um, translating this, this, this huge epic? Well, that's a fast forward on that one. I mean, the beauty of a NELK program at University of Washington is that, you know, you start with your general language of interest that you want to specialize, like say Uzbek. And then Ilsa took us all the way back to the earliest runic script, like the Orhan inscriptions, and worked us linguistically through the entire history of the Turkic languages until finally towards the tail end of your third year, you really, you know, a little maybe earlier than that, you really start to dig on dig in on your modern language. And so um, I was dying to get back to Uzbekistan um, the moment I showed up in Seattle. That was my whole purpose of grad school is I wanted to go back with the tools that I that I developed um, to keep, give you some context. In the mid-90s, there was this group called the Taliban. You know, big events were happening in Afghanistan. And and you know you're crazy when, you know, the, the mullahs in Iran are telling the ta Taliban to tone it down on this, you know, 
extreme form of Islam. And, and so, you know, I have to mention Brandon Wheeler in the NELC department, uh, giving me a basis in Islamic law. Um, and it, it helped me understand some of the questions I had about living in Kokand, where a group of 5,000 men on Haidt taught me how to pray, you know. And so, again, I had more questions than answers. And uh, Professor Karimi Hakak taught me Persian. You know, he's still a good friend. All these people are good friends today, you know. And so... Um, so I had lo <clears throat> lots of questions I wanted answered. And towards the tail end of grad school, September 11th occurred. And um, I knew immediately when the, when the planes hit the Twin Towers that it had something to do with the stands. I hate the term, but I'm going to use the stands. And, and, and I started to worry about my, my, my Muslim friends in Seattle. I started to worry about people in Uzbekistan. And I went, ironically, I went to go enlist at 31 and I was, I was a really good fit. I was really fit at the time. And the recruiter said, don't do it. Don't enlist because this war in Afghanistan is going to be over in two years. And you're going to be a second Lieutenant, at, you know, manning a guard post. You're never going to use your languages. And so I kind of made a deal with Ilsa that I would finish my coursework and I would go over to Tashkent and really work on you know, smoothing over the contours of my knowledge of the Uzbek language. And, um, but Mark, don't quit, don't enlist. If you don't get your master's degree now, you're never going to come back. And she was right, you know, so, so she, she made a deal. I went to Tashkent and, you know, very rough start, you know, in 2002, early 2003, um, but eventually the grant came up and I managed to secure the State Department grant and that kind of gave me a job. But before leaving, just to step back a little bit, before leaving, she says, okay, you know, you're going to study there for a year. You're going to come back and take your exams. And um, if you can translate the first three chapters of Utgan Kunlar, you have mastered the Uzbek language. <laughs> so, okay. So she says, you're going to go, you're going to go and you're going to read Utgan Kunlar for a year and I'm going to test you on um, your knowledge of the Uzbek language because if you can understand Qadiri, you can understand anyone. And that's where all these different components of, you know, Chagtai, reading the Babur Nama and Chagtai with her, you know, all this stuff started to come into play. And and as, I, as I'm in Tashkent reading this book that I've never read before, what really struck me is, first of all, how people were unbelievably passionate about it. You know, how did I get through Peace Corps and never hear about Ugan Kunlar? It's more of a commentary on my character. But so, you know, people are really passionate about it. I start to learn about, you know, um, literary politics at the time. Um, I, I really dig into the language. And I, I just say, you know, I've really got to finish this book. And so to hit the, you're being very patient with me. But as it hit fast forward again, I'm at K2 at Hanabad Air Base, and then I'm in Afghanistan, at times a combat interpreter, at times managing contracts for the DOD, you know, various hats that I wore in Afghanistan. And I watched my fellow Americans really struggle with many of the same subjects that Qadiri struggled with. You know, what is the role of Islam in governance? Right. I, I, you could that describes the issue of the Taliban right there. Right. Um, what is the role of women in Islam? You know, what is comprised? 
what 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 constitutes a family in that world to Kadiri. He's he's reimagining the family. So it's everything from social issues to the big eye of Islam, you know, all of these sorts of things. And I start to feel that what was great about Qadiri is that many of the same questions that we have today and even establish whole departments within the U.S. government to try to understand, right, Qadiri grappled with those very same issues. That's, yeah, I mean, that you're an incredible storyteller, by the way. So this is all really interesting. Um, I guess on that note, could you tell us a little bit more about Qadiri uh, now that, that we've gotten into the subject of his uh, Otkan Kunlar, like who was Abdullah Qadiri? Can you tell us a little bit about his upbringing, uh, his, where he's at during the Bolshevik Revolution, and, and why this context, as you've alluded to, is important for understanding his work and the kind of questions he grapples with? Great, great series of questions. You know, I, I still struggle with some of that. You know, there, there. For all the achievements and advances we've made in Central Asian studies, especially over the past couple of years, um, how do you define a man's life? It, you know, and and I've heard lots of stuff about the Jadids. You know, in general, if I could start out with the big macro issue, and say, you know, I mean, I mean, even in Afghanistan, I hate to make the comparison between the Taliban and the Jadids, but when you look at any social movement, any phenomena, right, you struggle with trying to characterize it and trying to describe it, and even as late as two thousand eight. 2009, we were arguing in the DOD, what, how, what is the Taliban? You know, what are they? Are they a movement? Are they a phenomena? So if, if I use the Jadids as a reference point with Qadiri, you know, I, I've heard everything to, to where the, the Jadids are atheists. Um, yeah, maybe some of them, maybe some of the movement was, but I don't believe Qadiri was, especially after you read Ukan Kunlar and you listen to him, or you, you watch Otebek, who is a representation of Qadiri's own beliefs, you know, um, sort of autobiographical, you know, and, and you watch Otebek struggle with Islam and struggle with his faith, um, questions of Sufism, you know, the whole nine yards. And so the short answer to your question is Qadiri, you know, um, was not from a privileged family. Um, He worked his way through sort of the scribal class of uh, being a scribe for a merchant, which I think the merchant class, which figures very heavily in both Cholpan and Qadiri, you know, their influence on society is, I, I, I wish... In Central Asian studies, we dig deeper into that. So, yeah, um, just taking a step back, could you could you briefly define like who who the Jadids were and and why um, why it matters that Kodiri is is kind of like operating within this movement, if we want to call it that. Okay, so um, I'll step way back, start over with his upbringing, then the Jadids, and then context. Um, okay. Okay, so um, what's so interesting about Abdullah Qadiri is that um, he was not really a made man. Um, he came from a really simple background. And what's sort of told to me anecdotally is that just sort of through his own steam managed to um, pick up, um, you know, through a, a traditional madrasa education, the classic languages of the madrasa. So Arabic, Persian, Turkic, uh, 
in addition to that, I think his big breakout moment was that he managed to learn Russian through a special school and then become a scribe for a, a local notable, a, a merchant in the Tashkent the city of Tashkent. And so that's important as a merchant, because as we know, merchants traveled. Um, Altebek is depicted in the very beginning of the novel of Ugan Kunlar as a merchant. You know, he's been trading in the caravan. So that was very much part of Kadiri's life. Um, so he was able, so he started out as a scribe and then, you know, he, he got caught up in sort of this electrifying moment between the wars, you know, of, you know, let me step back. That's not correct. <laughs> so he, he, he got caught up in this, these moments of reform that, and I think when you look at Scott Levy uh, or Levy, um, you, you know, that Kadiri grew up in this ecumenical world, a Turkic Persian Arabo Indo world of Central Asia that was part of a global system, part of a global history, and which very much is represented by you know merchants in in Jadid literature and in his you know in his literature, and so um, he was also this is important I think this sounds strange but he was also a gardener. Uh, and they, they use the term gardener, but I, I've been at the Kadiri home, which is now a museum. And he had a significant amount of land that he managed to purchase through his his profits. And, and, and he was a bit of a farmer. And so um, he was very much tied to people who work for a living. That was very much part of his work ethos is that, that he may be a writer at night, but he's a farmer during the day bringing in his crops, you know, whatever. And so that's a little bit about his upbringing and education. And I think it's important when, when you look at his work is to understand that he, that he was educated in a madrasa, um, you know, uh, in his later teens, if I remember, or his early twenties, he ended up going for one year to the Bryuzov uh, Institute for Journalism in Moscow. And so when you read the second chapter of the book, Gakun Lar, you'll get a little bit of understanding of Kadiri early in the novel pick, depicting, you know, the hopes and dreams that Otebek had for reform and that, that Russia and, and for the Jadids, Turkey, were sort of models for that reform. Uh, you know, there's a lot of debate about what exactly is a Jadid, a term that I just used. Um, you could say that, you know, and this is very much debated within academia, and there's these two sort of polar opposites, and I'm, I'm kind of somewhere in between. For now, we could just say that it was a, it was a short-term uh, phenomena, cultural phenomena that occurred in the 19, let's put it around in the 1920s. Um, the 1910s, the 1920s, the 1930s of um, post-colonial people after the Tsarist Empire who were looking around the world and, and wanted change. And we've used the t term Jadid, which means new, uh, for the new method that they were using to institute reform, especially within the education system. We use that term to, to try to describe that phenomena. But I, but I really think that studies on Jadidism have really developed. And I really love the, the sort of 
scholarly debate where you have kind of Devin DeWeese on one end and Adib Khalid on the other end, you know, sort of describing, you know, various aspects like, can you really call them modernists? You know, that's kind of insulting in a way, like, you know, like as if modernism hadn't already made its way into Islam or that, it, that, that those are two separate ideas where they're really not, you know, but when you, when you read Ugakunlar, the, the, the most telling thing for me is some of the autobiographical information that Qadiri puts in there. So the very first note from the reader or from the writer, Yusuf Chidan, you know, he writes a note to the reader saying that I'm concerned about the loss of our heritage in this changing world, you know, that we now have the novel that is available, this new medium. We now have the printing press. And so my own personal interpretation of the Jadids is that they were very much inheritors of this enlightenment idea of the printing press, the coffee house, um, the idea of bringing society forward in, in their, with their vision of how Islam and, and how governance should occur post czarist empire russia and and but they were also witness during these reforms and during these moments these really catastrophic events in central asia of famine struggles over water uh settlers russian settlers which we'll probably talk a little bit later about the russians you know um russian settlers coming into the region and them gaining disproportionate amount of control of central asia central asian resources and the inevitable anger that 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 brings and and so i i see you know you know you know gosh i don't know you know there are so many more knowledgeable people on this subject i mean may, maybe fitrot was a a card carrying commie I, I i don't know you know i mean there's so much that's not available to us in archives in Uzbekistan to kind of come to some of these conclusions. I'm a little bit like Lou Reed. I don't believe anything that I read and half of what I see, you know? And, and so for me, you know, I'm not as concerned of what the Jadids were during the Russian revolution. I think they saw it as an opportunity, you know, for change from an old order to a new world. But I think as you read Ugakunlar, Altebek, slowly becomes cynical about the Russians that he was extolling at the very beginning for Russian reform. And then by the end, Yusuf Bekhaji and Otebek are pretty much saying that the Russians are the pigs that are going to dirty the waters of Turkestan. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I think that uh, that context of Kadiri's own world, his upbringing, the historical period that he's writing about, the historical period that he's trying to navigate that changing cultural landscape. And just like in the early 90s of independent Uzbekistan, trying to come to terms and identify things that really sort of sit right in the Uzbek soul and defining what is an Uzbek and what is a Tajik and what is a Kazakh. You know, I, I mean, we as academics and scholars and translators, we can be aloof from that, but that, that, that held very serious implications for people. And I think as you see the bitterness start to develop in Nukan Kunlar, is I think that the promises of the Russian revolution, you know, it was, our, in their eyes, a Russian revolution. That, 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 you know, that our world is going to become increasingly more homogenized 
by these SSRs, the, the delineation of borders in 1924. And so, so I, I kind of arrived with Ukon Kunlar to kind of answer all these questions in sort of one package is that it's a novel 20 years before the czarist conquest of Tashkent. And yes, he's writing about the past to describe his own present as a warning to the future, future generations, that if we do not define ourselves, then other people are going to define us for us. And, and we're going to lose a little bit of that ecumenical world, that Turkic, Persian, Arab, Indo world that he so well depicts in the novel. We're going to lose that. And, and we're going to get something that's going to be alien to us. And on top of that, um, you know, before we get really deep in the details of the book, it, it does bear mentioning that um, another reason why his his identity as a Jadid, as as this uh, Muslim reformer, is that he ought, he like Chalpan and others falls victim to the Stalinist purges in the late nineteen thirties, um, and I think there, you know, you can. Uh, disagree with me, but it seems that there's obvi- an obvious connection between um, his identity as a Jadid and 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 his you know tragic end um, in 1938. Um, so um, I kind of want to now uh, get into the details of of the book um, and maybe a little bit about the uh, translation process. Um, um, so, so the book follows, as you mentioned, Atabek, uh, the son of Yusuf Bek Haji, who is a Muslim reformer and trader, and it takes place. Um, actually, actually, step back. Quite, he's actually yeah. a local notable. He's actually the main mullah in Tashkent, an advisor to Aziz Bek, who eventually revolts against Hudarahan. Yeah, and and I think that's kind of the point I wanted to bring up is that that yet despite the fact that uh, Kaderi is writing in the 1920s, he decides to set the book in the 1840s, like right or 1840s or 1850s. Um, maybe you can correct me on that. Uh, right before the Russian conquest of of Turkestan, and you know we see places like Tashkent and Margilan. Um, I'm just curious why what what's the purpose of of setting the book in your opinion in that time period and, and what is what do you think Kadiri was trying to show us about uh, is he trying to present a, a realistic picture of uh, Turkestan before the Russian conquest or is there is there something else in his motives uh, for doing that? A, a little bit of both. I mean, so it starts in 1845, um, Tashkent, Turkestan, uh, the Kokan Hanate, uh, 20 years before the, the, con- the Russian conquest of Tashkent in 1865. But that, that prior period looming in the background is we, we all know that Russia had already began advancing through the Kazakh steppe. Uh, it started to throughout the novel that that period of the novel that ends with the, gosh, you're going to, I'm going to 1862, I believe, like two or three years before the Russians arrive in Tashkent. You know, um, the, the, the book ends in Avriyata, uh, which is now Kazakhstan. But so throughout the novel, the Russians are kind of this, you know, on the horizon. 
and it's mentioned that if we do not reform ourselves, this infighting between sedentary peoples and the Kipchaks and nomadic peoples within the Kokan Hanate is going to weaken us and we are not going to be able to withstand Russian conquest. So there's a little bit of him looking back, right? And and so with the so the political aspect of that, which the Russian aspect, you know, the Russian influence is very much politically motivated. Yeah. So you were kind of talking about like um, maybe he's he has almost a discussion of colonialism, perhaps, or is he trying to comment on? Uh, the contemporary political situation in 1920s. Do you think that this is an allegory or is it a real representation of his thoughts on the past? Uh, all of those things, you know, I, I, you know, I, I think it's an allegory of the past to describe his present and, 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 and what he sees for to be a dark future. And, you know, the NKVA day killed him for a reason. You know, and and so th- there's that political aspect that as he's depicting historical events of, you know, the pride that precedes the fall of Central Asia, infighting, uh, economic stagnation, taxation, uh, um, court struggles between the region of a young Hedorah Han uh, with Musulman Kul, who is a Kipchak. Uh, and then you have Hudora Han, who's part of the sedentary class, you know, uh, the Shahru kids, you know, the, the dynasty that ruled the Kokan Hanate is very much in some ways like Dumas, you know, the three musketeers and that sort of courtly depictions, you know, but he's trying to capture that. Ironically, you know, I, I want to be careful how much I read into this, but ironically, ethnic tensions between us Turkic people is going to lead to our fall. And this is all occurring in Tashkent, and it's also occurring in the Fergana Valley. Um, he does depict um, specific historical events. He does kind of skip over a couple of Hans, you know, <laughs> but um, so it's not exactly the historical timeline. I, I think he takes a little bit of liberty to to keep the story rolling with with historical facts in certain moments but that's it's not really a big deal but but the most notable aspect of the book and somebody smarter than me maybe you you know can do some research on this but there's a chapter called the massacre of the kipchaks where um basically in order for the sedentary class to have career advancement they order the extermination if you will um of kipchak factions within the kokan hanate um and you know uh, scott levy in his wonderful history of kokan you know cites some numbers about how many were actually killed over like a one year period i believe you know but it was it was basically you could call it ethnic cleansing so the question i ask about this chapter is is this the first central asian novel to depict ethnic cleansing you know, I, we need to do more research on that. I don't know. But there's these incredible passages after this historical moment that, you know, where questions of corruption, you know, Yusuf Bek Haji has another wonderful, beautiful chapter, you know, where he, he and this is one of the chapters attributed with Qadiri's death and Kevay Day used it as evidence against him. 
um, where he basically says, you know, all for some gold, all for the advancement of a career, you've decided to kill a whole people. And man, I, other people can look at that passage and try to translate it differently and come up with a different interpretation. It's hard to avoid the translation that I offer on that one. I'll stick with that one. You know, so, so he, he's providing an allegory of the past uh, for his present future, you know, in, in the sense that he's seeing those divisions being created perhaps by the Soviet process of homogenizing these stands, it becomes an us against them sort of moment that starts to arise. And I think he's lamenting that. And he couldn't have predicted events in Fergana Valley, of course, but you kind of, I kind of asked myself on a spiritual level, if this is the national narrative and the national novel of Uzbekistan, and it's so beloved and people read these different versions that have come out, you know, did the book ironically help fuel some of the belief systems that persist in the Fergana Valley? You know, that's a different topic, <laughs> you know, but, you know, well, and and I'm glad that you've kind of mentioned. So one one aspect that that you've you've kind of discussed in the book is um, this idea that there are kind of ethnic tensions between different groups, um, both in the the 1840s and 1850s. But you you're mentioning that this might actually be a commentary on the 1920s. Um, obviously, that's open for interpretation. Are there any other major themes you see in the book? You know, one thing I notice is that. Yes, you you have kind of this uh, throughout the book. You see that there's this overarching context of um, feuding Hans in Tashkent and and other in and in Kokand and other places. But there's also this really personal story surrounding Ottebeck and his relationship with his parents and and the institutions of marriage. So, what do you think uh, Kadiri's goal um, in that part of the story? What's what is he trying to say about the 1920s or the 1850s or um, maybe some more universal themes? Yeah, you know, so I'm I'm glad we got past sort of the the flinty eyed ethnic tension, you know, <laughs> aspects of the book, and and get to some of you know it's a it's a balance, you know, where I, I think that you know okay there were political aspects and historical aspects of the novel but there were also you know uh the need for social reform you know one of the most powerful scenes in the novel is where Kamush Otebek's wife um comes to um the Kushbeg Utaboy Kushbegi to get her father and Otebek out of jail just before their execution. And she has a letter as proof that's going to free them from, from the axe or the noose. I don't know how they kill people in the Kokanane, but, um, and, and so she arrives with this letter of proof. And at that moment, she takes her Paranjir off and she drops it and exposes her face to all these strange men within Hudarahan's court. Kamush is also highly literate. Otebek's wife is highly literate. She, you know, they're reading Babur Nama throughout the novel. They're reading Fizulis th throughout the novel. And so he kind of gives a vision of, you know, look, in the 19th century, right, you, you have this growing sense of usness. Of, of who we're going to be and, and, and maybe the earliest inklings of reform in Central Asia, you know, uh, Halid or Deweese could probably correct me on all of this, 
but by the 1920s, I, I actually think, you know, um, Khalid's description of the Jadids as cosmopolitanists, if you if we can use that as a word, you know, where the bob haircut, you know, more common in in, in Germany and Berlin, you know, that sort of avant-garde period would not have been strange to the Jadids, you know, and, and so it's just sort of this weird you know, and I don't want to use the word weird, but it's sort of this just fabulous mixture of all these different elements. And he presents them in the, in the novel, you know, um, and, and in terms of social reform, one of the biggest issues is, of course, arranged marriages. And we as Westerners, we go to Uzbekistan and we make all these comments about arranged marriages and everything. And I hate the generalizations that are made, you know, and, and, and that, you know, Arranged marriages really depend on various sets of circumstances, you know, within within neighborhoods, within families, within individuals. But Altebeck in the novel makes the argument that I want to be I want to be married out of love and I want to have one wife. And so the favorite word by Uzbek is kundoshlik, which, you know, kun means day, dosh means one who shares. Right. And then you have the verbal noun. You know, um, so basically second wives, those who share the day, these women, you know, second and third wives in a family, a polygamous, what is that, a polygamous marriage? And so um, Kadiri really attacks that institution of multiple wives and the tragedy that really results from that. I don't want to give too much away, but, you know, um, Uzbek OAM, um, through a sheer force of will, forces Altebek to marry a second wife. And tragedy ensues from all of that. And so um, Kadiri also wrote um, a play called The Pederast, which I don't think is really evidenced anymore. I don't think we have it available. Maybe it's in some archive in Tashkent, where he attacks the institution of Bacha Bazi, which are dancing boys that you still see in the world today, unfortunately. And and he just basically depicts the social conditions of a dancing boy and, and the tragedy and the limitations that it puts on his life. So it's kind of again mid 19th century is the pride before the fall you know and and these are the social conditions that led to us being diminished and weakened against the and the russians yeah and i think this is another instance where you can kind of see how this kind of judeus uh, movement was was a was a kind of modern critique uh not only of 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 russia um, and, and Russian, inf- you know, Russian influence via the colonialism, but also of social conditions uh, native to Turkestan or Uzbekistan at the time and, and in the years that, that he sets the book. Um, so, Mark, I, I, I want to kind of shift the conversation a little bit because it, it's kind of unique that we get the chance to talk to the, the, the translator of the text um, you know, on this channel, a lot of times we're talking to people who are doing research, but you actually spent uh, several years uh, working on translating the text. And I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about um, the translation process, whether or not you developed any general strategies for approaching the text and the kind of difficulties you faced, um, you know, taking taking a work of, of Uzbek and, and, and putting it into the English language. Yeah, so, you know, actually the linguistic issues 
are not insurmountable in a, in a sense to derive meaning from the text. Um, at the time that I did it, I did not have the resources available to me that I actually have now. Um, a gentleman, the last name of Matov, has a two-volume Uzbek English language set, dictionary set that really helped me. I mean, even into the last month of putting this thing out. Um, there's a Soviet two-volume edition, uh, <coughs> Lugate explanatory dictionary from the Soviet period in the 1960s. That's a that's a treasure, uh, and it's it's very hard to find. Uh, and then I had my little dinky, you know, dictionary. And so what I really relied upon, I have to say, at this point, you know, I had dozens of friends that some of these opaque meanings and phrases that I couldn't find in the dictionary. I couldn't find through my studies. Uh, I relied heavily upon Umida Hikamatsalaeva at Indiana University. I relied um, heavily on uh, Umida Hashimova, the other Uzbek uh, editor uh, for Utgan Kunlar. Um, really great knowledge. You know, some of these phrases, you know, um, that we struggled with, some of them took a really long time to arrive at a consensus. In you know, the the Chagtai, the Turkic language of the predecessor of modern Uzbek, you know, Kadiri was sort of straddling that world and helping standardize a, a modern Uzbek language. Everything from from orthography down to coming up with a new printing press so that they could print something called Yana Imla, which is an a modified Arabic script that can be more easily printed. So he's in this transition period and his language really reflects that. So you just have to get into, you have to, you ha in my opinion, the translator has got to be really humble. And I put myself as translator of the novel, but I've had a ton of help. It's all in the acknowledgements, you know, and, um, I really started to dig down deep in the novel, go from finishing up grad school, reading it, taking my exams. I went to Afghanistan. I worked at Hanabad Air Base when that closed um, right after Andijan, events in Andijan. And I couldn't find a visa. I couldn't get a visa between 2004 and 2018 to Uzbekistan. And that really shut off a lot of collaboration. But we did just fine in the United States you know, trying to figure all this stuff out. Um, but what I originally, so I had zero strategy, but I did have some thoughts from Professor Karimi Hakak in grad school and Edith Grossman, the Spanish language translator who came up with the definitive translation of Don Quixote and has translated most of Gabriel Garcia Marquez's work, is that it, you know, translation's an art. It's a derivative art where you inevitably have to capture the meaning and tell the story in an idiom that that Westerners can understand uh, and process and try to bridge that gap as much as possible. So you don't want to get caught too much in, in the archaic usages and grammars and everything. You want to get, you know, you want to get the context. Don't get caught. Like people come up to me all the time. Well, what does this word mean in Uzbek, you know, in an old term? I'm like, I don't know, man, I'm going to have to go to the dictionary and find out. But if I'm going to translate that word, I want to see it within a, a sentence. I want to see it within a chapter, within, you know, within the whole book of what is that person, what did the author mean by that to put it into context? And I, I think that explains the 400 plus explanatory notes that I put in there.
Um, it explains Which were a lot. actually really helpful, by the way. Um, so thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and and yeah. I think I actually wanted to. That kind of is a good lead into my next question, um, which is what kind of like. So you have your motivations that we've kind of talked about for translating this book, but obviously you thought that translating an in, translating it into English would kind of um, allow you to reach uh, either an American audience or an English speaking audience. And I'm curious, like, what kind of reception did you anticipate? And I'm sure you've had some time to hear feedback on the book. So, so. Were were those expectations justified, or or have you heard new things uh, from people who might not be uh, familiar with Uzbekistan but have had a chance to read the book? Um, I'm just curious about that, and I'm sure that kind of motivated uh, some of the decisions that you made as you were translating the text. Yeah, so I, you know, I really, I don't know if I skipped over this, but I really dug into the text line by line sending stuff to Amita um, for correction in Afghanistan starting in 2005. You know, that's the vicissitudes of warfare. You can have a, a really bad day and then you could have a bunch of days that, with a lot of free time on your hand. So I was able to really dig down. and But being around your typical American that's trying to figure out the, you know, the Afghans trying to figure out their own experience, listening to the a struggle after 9-11 with these questions that Qadiri struggled with. You know, I wanted to put one, I wanted to put the language, not simple, but as straightforward and readable as possible. You know, I, and I think, and I will be the first one to admit, and maybe I can address this in a second edition, is I think in that process, I lost a lot of Qadiri's humor. Qadiri was famous for his humor. And if you if you really study Uzbek and get to speak it pretty well, the Uzbeks have a wonderful sense of humor. They're, they're very funny, especially Kuchatilla. They, they're a laugh out loud type of people. And Qadiri has that throughout his novel. And I don't know, I think humor is the most difficult thing to really process and to really capture it in another language. And so sometimes, you know, yeah, I get some of the protectionism and nationalism, you know, from, you know, Uzbekistan, you know, trying to, you know, protect their intellectual turf you know how can an american truly understand uzbek well enough to capture qadiri's language and i i just you know i got to go back to 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 a degree um all translations betrayal you know you have to tell the story and i'm trying to tell it to a western audience who for 20 plus years has no idea I, i hate to say it when they think of central asia they start to think of borat Okay. And so me going through this whole experience of it, trying to explain to my parents, Uzbekistan and, 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 but the other aspect is, is that, you know, we've had this whole concentration on the Timurids after independence and rightfully so we, we owe them a great depth of gratitude for their contribu- contribution to Western civilization and our development. But, but I think that when somebody lays flowers down on the grave of Amir Timur in Gor Emir, they're really remembering Qadiri. 
um, the, the death of the Jadids in 1938, that was the topic, the inconvenient topic that you really couldn't talk about. Right. You could, you could, so is the, so in Uzbekistan and one of the beauties and frustrations of the Turkic language, it's not always what they're saying. It's what they're not saying. (laughs) So, so, but, so the question to me then is to escape some of the scholarly, you know, translation theory type of stuff, you know, how about you listen to the Uzbeks, right? Talk about their national narrative. So, um, love Devin DeWeese. I've known him for a long time. Adib Halid, like all of these people. But to me, my purpose is to try to capture, you know, why they love the novel um, and why Qadiri was willing to die from year to more in 1938. You know, and I think he was conscious of it. I think he was willing. Uh, you know, nobody knows how a man goes off to his death. You know, but I, I, I think that the Jadids and Ukan Kunlar just sort of taps at the heart of the conversation that people have not been able to have since 1926 and until recently, you know, and, and you know, I, I am no yes man. Um, I, I, you know, I'm a U.S. citizen, um, but I really am heartened by uh, and, and President Mirzioyev's reforms. Mm-hmm. I, I think that he's, for example, he's referenced Kundash Leek in some of his speeches. I mean, he's referenced Ukan Kunlar in some of his speeches. And I'm, I'm highly cynical. You know, uh, I couldn't get a visa for years in Uzbekistan. I've really had my he- feelings hurt there, you know, and I was really cynical when he took power, but he's kind of won me over with this, that to him, if I could be so bold as to assert, Ukan Kunlar is kind of the measuring stick that people use today to decide their own reforms and, and how, how successful are they going to be? You know, so, you know, I kind of want to get a bracelet. What would Kadiri do <laughs> instead of Jesus? But, you know, so am I answering your question, Nick? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that that's actually um, maybe a good place to kind of wrap up our discussion. Um, I know we've taken up certainly enough of your time. Um, but I did want, before we end, I did want to give you the chance to maybe tell us about um, some other projects now that you've. Uh, completed this wonderful translation, maybe some other projects that you're thinking about, or if you've had a chance to kind of go and, 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 and talk about the book, um, if you have anything planned in the future, um, that'd be, now would be a good time maybe to hear about that. Well, so, you know, recently, you know, um, Ambassador Javalan Vahabov invited me to go and speak at the, um, Embassy of Uzbekistan in Washington, D.C. And it was a great moment for all of my friends who've helped me establish Mulakot Cultural Engagement Program. And I, I have to say, Kamila and Nadir uh, Zakirov, uh, Gulzor Sultanova, who did the cover of the book, um, the Qadiri family that I've worked with for a really long time. You know, I, I created the Mulakot Cultural Engagement Program, one, so that um, I could use it as a means of strategic messaging and have a broader dialogue. Like you translate a book, so what, right? You can buy it on Amazon, but I wanted to have something that could, 
one, remain true to the Qadiri family. If I can tell this little anecdote, you know, Abdullah Qadiri's um, daughter is still alive. Um, and um, she's very, very old. In 2018 was the first time I was able to get a visa. And I stayed with Hondamir Qadiri in his house and met Mazuna Qadiri and Irfan Qadiri, the whole family, very, very nice people. But when I walked in to meet the daughter, she immediately did what older Uzbek women will do is sort of lift up their shirt to cover their neck. You know, she, but she was visibly afraid. And I found out later that, you know, her husband was arrested and disappeared. And and she thought I was the NKV day coming to get her. <laughs> and so it, it's a personal story. Nick, I don't know. I'll ask him if we could use it or not. But it kind of gives me this, you know, Mulakot for me is a way of saying the so what. You, you came out with a book. You struggled. All of that stuff is great. And what I really see is that Javalon Vahabov, um, President Mirzioyev, Horshid Dust Muhammad, a very well-respected writer in Uzbekistan. Um, we kind of see, you know, so I did the the speech at the embassy and everything. I have an invite for April to go and speak at the Qadiri Museum and the Qadiri School, um, see some of Dust Muhammad's work, uh, maybe meet with the Writers' Union. Um, I would really like to talk about how we're going to incorporate them into the Mulakot program and get more translations out there. You know, Christopher Fort, is a hero, right? For Chopin, you know, how do we, you know, how do we catch up for the past 20 plus years where, you know, we've had a lot of stuff in the way from doing our work. And so that, that's kind of the program, you know, and, you know, I, there's a, there was a moment for me, I mean, to the guy who didn't know Jack all about Uzbekistan when he got on the plane in 1994, you know, the Arizona Kishlovsky, um, when I was at the ambassador, the ambassador's you know, at the embassy, uh, he said, you know, um, okay, you signed a copy for President Mirzioyev. We'll make sure that he gets a copy. You know, my, you know, let's write a letter. So I wrote him a letter. I, I got to write President Mirzioyev a letter. I'm truly gifted with the ability to, you know, to talk clearly. And so I wrote him this letter. And I, I'm an Arizona guy, man. I, I gave it to him straight. And uh, the other day, <laughs> Mazuna Kadiri calls me and she says, Markaka, Markaka, they're reading your letter to the president on national TV on Ahborat. And I'm like, holy crap, you know, I, I've kind of come full circle on 25, 26 years of, you know, this letter is being read. And so there's this acceptance of my work that I'm receiving in Uzbekistan. I think that I, I've submitted a proposal. Um, they, um, said, Mark Aka, you know, you need to do Mehrab Don Shayan next. Uh, and I would like to do Obid Kitman too, another Qadiri book. Mehrab Don Shayan is, is the second Qadiri novel, to step back a little bit. And I just said, look, I need your support. I've financed the work with um, Utgan Kunlar all through my own pocket until last year when I had some angel donors come in and pay for the design and layout and the copy edit. And that, that allowed me to have complete control and produce a book that I really wanted to see, you know, without any inhibitions. And so I just basically threw it back at, at the government and said, I, I need your support with this proposal. You know, uh, how important is Uzbek literature to you? 
you know, if you want, if you want to get this stuff done, we, we need to build it. And so I'm hoping that Mulacock cultural engagement program or some other vehicle will be a way to, uh, to do that. Um, one last note on the translation. I kind of have this line, um, that, you know, all, all the victories of the novel are the Uzbek people. Uh, all the defeats are mine. The mistakes that I made in translating it. Um, I, I, I like the idea. I'm extremely humbled and privileged to be able to provide a book that helps Westerners better understand Uzbekistan, um, gives a voice for the Uzbeks to explain themselves on their own terms. It's the reason why the Jadids were willing to die for their ideas. Um, but I also hope through Mulakot and, and working with the Uzbek government that these young Uzbek translators out there that are learning English, you know, they got to learn to kill their heroes, man. You know, I want them to read Ugakun Lar translated by Mark Reese and say, I can do a better version than that, you know, and inspire them to move on. Well, that that gives us certainly a lot to look forward to, um, and and I, I hope that we do end up seeing more translations uh, from Kaderi or other Uzbek writers, whether from you or from young Uzbek translators. And um, I just wanted to, you know, for the listeners once again, um, if you liked what you heard with with the interview uh, with Mark Reese, please check out the Mulagat Cultural Engagement Program. Uh, find ways to support and get involved in, in Uzbek translation and uh, pick up a copy of uh, if, if, if it appeals to you, uh, please consider picking up a copy of Bygone Days or Utkan Kunlar, which was published in 2019 uh, by the Mulakot Cultural Engagement Program. And Mark, I just wanted to thank you again uh, for, for taking the time to talk about this wonderful translation. It was an absolute pleasure to have you on the program. Minham Horsaman Nikaga. I wish you all the best for your great career and with your PhD and, and all of that. Um, I think you're gonna. Be, I think you're you're brilliant. Oh, thank you for that. Um, yep. Thanks. Bye now. 